Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Hello, welcome. Thanks very much for coming along on a Friday evening. And um, we're going to be looking, hopefully for the next few weeks, at a subject that I am constantly learning about. And I was just saying before, never felt like I've really had not a lot of time to be able to dig, dig into and end up with fragmented bits of various things that I'm trying to hold together in my head. And often I find that the best way for me to be able to begin to understand something is to try and teach something on it. So that's really what I've been uh, doing a little bit of. Um, so we are in a little mini series for the evenings called Armageddon Out of Here. And this is the first one. It's the end of the world as we know it. Maybe. <laughs> so uh, there's a l- the picture that you can see kind of in the background there reminds me of one that Zoe and I were watching a Netflix um, mini-series recently called The Left Behinds or something like that. And it's like all these people who are left after something like a rapture has happened and uh, there's like this uh, you know, apocalyptic thing and there's some weird sects that all are some that go some people have decided it seems to just smoke themselves to death as one part of it and other people uh, you know it's like how do people cope with it if you were the one if the rapture happened and you didn't make the cut is the kind of idea and um, we got into it for a bit and then it started to get even more weird than I've just described it and so we we stopped so uh, but there are any number of kind of dystopian future Um, books and an ever-growing collection of movies about the end of the world and uh, your place in it and you can stream them just about any time that you want to. Um, One that stands out for me 10 years on is the unfortunately called 2012 Um, because if you're going to date a disaster movie of when the world's going to end it soon runs past its sell-by date literally and this was based upon some Mayan prophecies um, and the idea, it was released two years before, and again, lots of people were like, oh, will it happen in 2012? And then it didn't. Um, you've probably heard of Dr. Michel de Nostradamus, or Nostradamus, the 16th century astrologer who wrote occult almanacs, including 10 books of 100 verses of obscure and undated four-line predictions, the symbols of which uh, he claimed would tell the future right up until the year 3797, which he says is when he felt the world would end. One of the most famous lines that people have picked out is that is something that seems a little bit like the twins will fall. So you can imagine how people then said around 9-11, ah, that's what that is. That's what he was talking about. And other people say there's like something called Hisler and they say, oh, that's it. He predicted Hitler. And there's also some people say that he predicted um, the death of Diana. It's widely accepted, however, that the translations of his, to be honest with you, vague and totally unordered works from 16th century French into English make it all notoriously inaccurate, to say the least, to start with. And nobody ever made a prediction ahead of time based upon what they read in Nostradamus. What happens instead is that afterwards people go, oh, look, that's like that. Um, It was only afterwards that somebody said, oh, that line about the young lion, that must mean Henry II, for instance. Uh, So what you do is they retrofit the words to fit the headlines. 
So, what does that have to say to us and to help us to think about how we handle the Bible and its prophecies? Um, I'm not surprised to find that there's been a good amount of interest in the idea of these talks. I'm very grateful, as I said, for you joining us. Not necessarily because I think I'm going to be able to do any kind of justice. And it's the kind of thing, to be honest with you, with whatever you say, somebody's going to think you're wrong. And the more you say, more people will think you're wrong. <laughs> so uh, doing three talks is better than doing five talks on it. Because by the end of three, maybe I'll have at least a few friends left. But, um, but I am constantly trying to learn how to piece these things together. And as I say, I generally find that if I teach something on it, I can start to piece it together in my own head a little bit as I'm trying to help to understand at least my thinking to other people. Whether or not they agree with it, that's up to you. I'm not up to here to convince anybody to think the same as me about everything. Um, but the fact is, as we've already discussed in, in so many ways, you know, in the, out there in the world outside of the church, as well as inside the church, the idea of the end of the world and end time stuff has often become something of an obsession in the 21st century. Some of us will remember, we nervously actually put on a disco and a, and a party, because we were then in a church in Maidstone, and I was DJing at it, at the year 2000, and everybody was like partying a little bit nervously, hoping that when 2000 hit, um, that the world wouldn't actually end and that, we, you know, that the computers wouldn't all crash and uh, we'd all end up you know, with the cars crashing into each other and all of the computers crashing or whatever. And phew, it was like, oh great, we've got, we can start the 21st century. And then since then, then, just as you feel like it's safe again, what happens? One political or economic uh, change after another. There's the growth of globalism, which seems to now be dismantling before our very eyes. We've seen more recently COVID mandates. There's a lot more um, discussion around issues to do with the environment and global warming. And, the, and you've got the global warming on one hand and the new Cold War on the other to kind of balance that out. And taking us right back to the days of my own years, uh, growing up in the 80s, disco dancing under the shadow of the potential mushroom cloud that was always ever present then about, you know, like Sting singing about help the Russians love their children too. And, um, you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood when two tribes go to war, all this kind of stuff. We, like, it was just part of the backdrop of life in the kind of 80s. And then this, um, some of you may even have seen this, this booklet came out in 1980 to help you know how to survive if the bomb went off. And it's interesting to happen to look at that and think how the picture of the nuclear family has actually changed <laughs> since 1980, because that's what they said our family looked like uh, in those days. Uh, and now smattered in with the popular imagination of all the books and the movies and across YouTube and other platforms are also available, you're going to find fragmented, residual, biblical ideas and themes that remind people a bit of this ancient book called the Bible and hasn't it got references in there to the moon turning to blood and stars falling and the earth's waters being poisoned and, and, and so I really didn't have to even look for this but you don't have to look far on the internet to find the most complicated charts that say this is what is really really going on. And, uh, and so I'm not going to try and unpack that, to be honest with you. Um, because, you know, but the internet is full of experience. Internet is charts and things that will explain the famines or the floods or the plagues or the wars and the rumours of wars and the millennium and the mark of the beast. 
all featured in the last book of the Bible, which is called Revelation, which again tends to come with a duh, 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 when people talk about Revelation. Um, but the see, movie writers, I mean, yeah, it's a mysterious book, but they try and make it seem even more dramatic because everything that is ever going to be a clue out of the Bible, it always has to be out of Revelation, doesn't it? And it's weird how some private detective will always know what Revelation 14.2 means or what it is, memorised it. I don't even know what that means. But it's like, that's the clue that everybody needs to be able to crack the case and find the killer. And, but Revelation, actually, is just a pretty ordinary word and what they would tend to do in, the, in, in things like the Bible, very often in books like it, they just call the book after the first letter in the book. And the first letter in the book in the original language is Revelation. That's the first word in the Greek that it's written in. Um, and the English for that word is, is the Greek apocalypse. Sorry, the, the Greek is apocalypse and we translate it into Revelation. And apocalypse doesn't mean the apocalypse. It literally means unveiling. It's like hidden, now you see it. That's all it means. Something you didn't see, now you can see it. It isn't necessarily about, it doesn't have to come preloaded with grim foreboding. So, what can we know about these things? What has God revealed to us? What is God showing us? What has, about what's happened uh, in the past, then what is God's plan for the future and what is a mystery to us? That's the kind of thing I want us to discuss and today is just kind of teeing it up and sending it off. So we're looking at the idea of Bible, biblical prophecy. So little discussion to start with because why should I be the one doing all the talking and the thinking? Just with a few people around you, please say hello and then here's the question. Somebody asks you, what's the difference between what the Bible says about the future and what somebody like Nostradamus prophesied? How do you answer? So, silly story slightly changed by me. Um, I was walking across a bridge one day and saw a man standing on the edge about to jump off. So I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he said. I said, well, there's so much to live for. He said, like what? Well, are you a believer or an atheist? Believer, he said. Me too. Christian or some other faith? He said, Christian. I said, me too. Catholic or Protestant? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. Cessationist or charismatic? Charismatic, I said. Wow, me too. What about the rapture? Pre-trib, mid-trib or post-tribulation? He said, post-tribulation. So I said, Die heretic and kicked him off the bridge. <laughs> now, as if there wasn't enough to fall out about in church, <laughs> um, once COVID became big news, I don't know about you, but my Facebook friends and other real friends started to put up posts or send me messenger messages or links with questions and many proposed answers to what was really going on and uh, I admit some of it it got me a bit nervous and and fairly kind of neurotic some of reading it because actually what I mean is some of these people really are friends they're people whose judgment I respect and I respect them as people and I tend to be a 
I'm a future thinker. I'm a scenarios thinker. I tend to go, well, if that's the case, well, maybe that's the case, and that's the case, and that's the case. And I tend to kind of run ahead with possibilities of what really could be. And, um, and often I tend to go to the worst scenario first and hope I'm wrong, because then you're less likely maybe to be disappointed than being a full-on optimist about everything. And um, so... I was not finding our government to be particularly trustworthy anyway, I have to say. And now, as I say, friends, people are messaging me links about pharmaceutical companies working with global elites using what they call the pandemic as a kind of 1984-style population control and reduction mechanism. While we, at the same time, were locking everything down and trying to get all the toilet rolls. <laughs> Well, some of us were. Lynn admitted, uh, that was an admission of guilt right there. We'll pray for you later. So we, <laughs> my questions then about the possible scenarios provoke reactions in two ways. Because I started to put stuff on my Facebook as well about you know, things I was thinking or questioning or wondering. I questioned many of the government's responses to the virus, particularly calling out what seemed to me to be kind of knee-jerk reactions at times to sage scientists often terrifying prognostications which seemed from my perspective to take billions out of the hands of the NHS while we were clapping them and uh, taking it out of their hands and putting it into the hands of people who happen to be friends of people in the government or with good company interests and none of that gave me a great deal of confidence in them. And I think that kind of thing doesn't help for the future if we're going to have any other crises to go through in terms of being told, well, just trust us. So I still question that, and I believe there's much that needs to be done, much greater scrutiny and accountability, and even looking back at some things and learning from them. My position on some of these things resulted in a message coming from a Conservative MP who said, quote, we thought you were a friend, um, but you don't seem to be. And I haven't been invited to 10 Downing Street like I used to. But then again, those are not my kind of parties. So, around the same time, I got a message from somebody else who remains convinced that the whole thing is a long-planned diabolical plot by shady Illuminati types using organisations like the World Health Organisation to give us vaccines that will change our DNA or else are completely unnecessary because we've got immunity anyway or why don't they give us chloroquine or ivermectin that makes you better. And this post from this person, this message basically said it's hard to know whether you are with us or not on this. What's your actual position? And I'm like, well, I said, I actually responded and said, my position is generally confused, but trust in Jesus. That's about where I am at the moment and still try to work out the implications of what that means. And then the links continued to be sent with cryptocurrencies either being good or bad, depending who you spoke to, and links to stuff to do with artificial intelligence and transhumanism thrown in for good measure, and the inherent distrust of anything at all you might ever see on what's called the mainstream media. And again, I agree, the media have refined the art of scaremongering to an art form in recent years, so that we, but even if they didn't, we can do a really good job of scaring each other. 
with social media stuff anyway without them. And then, if you are trying to read the Bible too, and here in the UK, just as we step out, it seems a little bit out of the COVID thing, out of restrictions, out of that kind of plague, if you like, if you're looking at your Bible, suddenly we come into what? War. And it's like, ooh, doesn't the Bible say something about this kind of stuff? And at least, we, you know, this is a war that seems a lot closer to home for us, even though there have been wars and there continues to be wars. There's never really been a time when there hasn't been wars. Throughout the last, you know, 100 years, at least there's always been some wars somewhere. So we've had Syria and Iraq going on and Myanmar and Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan, and many other places. And now we've got Ukraine. And didn't Jesus, though, didn't he talk about wars and rumours of wars and earthquakes? And are they increasing? Or is it just because we see more of these kind of stuff because it's more on the news and because they are more easily reported and somebody's always there, whatever's happening with the phone? So is, that, is it that they're increasing or is it just that they're increasingly reported and we're increasingly consuming that media, whereas it used to be you might wait and read a paper sometimes? Are these things signs? And I mean signs, not just signs of the times, but signs of what we, people call the end times, which is probably why most of us are here tonight to look at. Will the financial markets crash? And will we all be forced into one world global government, government system? Will there be a compromised one, one world government church and a faithful underground remnant? Will wars just keep on increasing from now on? until a peace deal is signed by a figure who then demands worship because they turn out to be the Antichrist. Well, here's the answers, answer I want to start out with all of those. God knows. God knows. And I'm not saying that flippantly. It, it actually, for me, is a source of great comfort. I don't know some of these answers. But I know God knows. And anybody else who comes to you rolling out with certainty rather than humility what they know for sure and they've got it all figured out as they speculate about Bill Gates and Pfizer and chips. There's a bad joke there. Um, is designed for some kind of disappointment. Because God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, a lot of this stuff is always going to be above my pay grade. Now, that doesn't excuse us from thinking about it or praying about it and studying our Bibles and discussing it and coming to our own conclusions. It's good. We have a responsibility to do that like we do with anything. And this is a very important thing for us to come to some conclusions about for ourselves. It doesn't mean that there are not some things that we can't be sure of and that we should say, I actually believe that and come to some conclusion. I don't think everybody's right about everything. But one thing, one sure thing is that whatever has happened, is happening or will happen in the future, God knows. God knows. So talking about Bible prophecy tonight, and what we're not talking about then is the, the biblical gift of prophecy, which can operate in a church where people come along and they may be praying for somebody or somebody stands up and maybe they'll come to you and say, I've got a word from God for you. That's the biblical gift of, of prophecy. That isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about interpreting the prophetic words that are already written in actual the Bible. We're going to look at how we can interpret what God wrote, what God has said, and particularly what he says about future events. Multiple times the New Testament writers are going to say, it happens so often, this happened to fulfill 
that which was said by the prophet, dot, 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 in the Old Testament. They don't say the Old Testament, but we know what that means. They didn't think of it as the Old Testament. It was scripture, as far as they were concerned. So they saw Jesus doing something, doing actually what he said he'd come to do in Matthew 5, verse 17. He said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. That's the, that's the Old Testament. He said, I've not come to do away with any of that. No, I came to what? Fulfill them. To fulfill what? The law and the prophets, all of it. He's come to fulfill it all. So everything that's in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment not just in the New Testament, but actually in Jesus. He says, I've come to fulfill it all. So, what was he fulfilling? God's promises, God's plans, God's purposes, revealed and recorded hundreds of years before he walked the earth as a man, because God knows and God made known beforehand what would happen when Jesus came. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 10. Here's how we can do it. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is to come? I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Anybody else saying that would be arrogant. (laughs) But God knows. And God shows what he knows. What's he told us? What has he told us? How do we understand it? How do we piece together what God says about what would happen and what is yet to happen in the future? All these uh, questions are what theologians call eschatology, which has nothing to do with Houdini. It's the study of last things. Whether or not you're brand new to this, or you're not sure about any of it except you think it just sounds a bit weird, or you've got a good kind of working knowledge of your Bible, but you find this stuff a bit confusing, or maybe you've already studied long and hard and you've put a lot of time into coming to your own conclusions. Maybe you've asked and, and, and come, you know, you've got some critical questions, I suppose, about what you believe as well. I hope that together we can all learn a little bit more from these times together as we introduce, and I'm going to introduce, a range of views about these things. Now, some of you might be saying, what do you mean, a range of views? And I agree, it's annoying when we think we're right, and somebody comes along and says, but there's a range of views on that. But on just about everything that we're going to look at, when it comes to end time stuff, there are various positions. And that, again, does not mean that we should not do the hard work of looking at them, weighing them, praying them through, thinking about how do they fit with our overall understanding of the whole of the Bible and the kind of God is demonstrated to us through them, about what we believe he's done and what he's doing and and how he will save not just us individually, but how he's got a plan to save the whole cosmos, the whole heavens and earth that he created nor should we shut down shout down or unfriend in some way people who don't hold the same view as us or kick them off a bridge just because they think something different about the rapture 
I'm not here necessarily to convince you about anything except that it's good to wrestle with these questions and to pray about them and to put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and in God who does know. So there's some things I've reached my own conclusions of. There's some things that it's only as I've been really looking at this, I've been challenged on them, things that I thought I thought, I don't really necessarily think I know anymore and I'm not so sure about some of those other things. So I'm gonna encourage you to do the same, but have convictions, have, have things that you believe, but in some of this stuff, hold them humbly. Can I say that? Can I hold them humbly? I'll happily admit to changing my mind on lots of things and I'm pretty glad that I did over the years as I've read and studied and sat in talks over the years and discussed with other people. And I know there's still a lot that I don't know. And I know that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like, oh my goodness, I was so wrong about that, 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 and that. Lord, thanks for letting me in. Thanks it's not, thank you it's not an intelligence test. <laughs> you know? So, we've already said, the writers of the 27 books of the New Testament often refer back to the 39 books of what we call the Old Testament. And they, what they saw was that they believed that God was prophesying future events that would live, many of them were being lived out in their time through Jesus Christ. They believed that God was so involved in the writing process that without overriding the will or the personalities of the people, the 40 different writers who were writing across various centuries, that the one who was writing the story behind all of those stories of history knows and knew what would happen, you know, down to the intricate degree of, uh, you know, that we see in the New Testament of, of things that seem like little things like, um, you know, if we're coming into Holy Week, we're going to start to see, you know, even the manner of on Jesus' death and him shouting, I thirst, and things like that. It's little things that are, are big when you look back upon them. So what we see is that they would look, and, they, and for the writers of the Holy Scripture, that they, they, would, they believe that God would speak through it to the people of the day in which he was written, to the people, them, of subsequent generations, and that it would continue to speak to us, including you know, the things that, we, that, that these things resonate with us as well. But it's an important factor to hold on to, that God did speak through the prophets, and first of all and primarily, he spoke first to the people who were alive at the time that the prophets were speaking and writing. Most of the time, many of the things that were written in there, they would go, Oh yeah, that's God. I know God's speaking to us about the injustices that are going on in our nation and the way that people are treating one another. Even if there were signs and symbols and things in there that we might think were weird and strange, they wouldn't think they were weird and strange because they would go, oh, this means that. They knew what was being referred to at the time because they were living through those times. For example, we recently did a long study here on the book of Daniel. We went right through a lot of Daniel, and then we stopped just as he got to the interesting bits. <laughs> because there's the visions, and there's these dreams, and these prophetic words, and there's glimpses, and then really clear things too about these battles in the heavenlies that were going on. While Daniel is in Babylon, and there's all these different kings that are going on, and while he's praying, there's angelic battles that are going on, and it matters how he prays. There's like these 
war in the heaven is going on between uh, demonic powers and angel, angelic beings and archangels over Greece and Persia and Israel. And Daniel is directly affecting those things through his faithfulness and his fasting and his prayer. So Daniel's in exile in Babylon, but he was given insight that predicted accurately in turn things like the rise and fall of the Medes and the Persians and the Greek Empire. And many people then say that he, they believe he also predicted the Roman Empire. And the detail on some of this is astonishing, especially when you look in Daniel chapter 11. He, Daniel described in intricate detail how Alexander the Great would come and live and rule briefly before his conquests would be divided among four weaker empires. And it's not even hard. It's not like the Nostradamus stuff that you've got to figure out. He's, he's saying this stuff really quite clearly. So how do you explain that? Well, some scholars who don't really believe in anything supernatural are going to look at that and they have a hyper-rational worldview that says, well, of course, the only re way that you could have said that before it happened is, well, you couldn't have said it before it happened. It must have been written after it happened. That's their explanation for it. So if you see something that looks like a prophecy and then it's fulfilled, it could only have been written after it happened. Now the first to suggest that Daniel was written by somebody else after the event was a Greek pagan leader called Porphyry who lived around 300 AD, 300 years after Jesus and he was an opponent of Christianity. He gave no evidence whatsoever for the claim but he, he and it was refuted at the time by the church fathers. Nobody seriously suggested until the 18th century, so-called so enlightenment, when philosophers wanted to cast doubt on anything supernatural in the Bible and say it never really happened, then they said, oh, well, Daniel must have been written after the events described because they're so accurate. That's the only explanation. We have an alternative explanation for how Daniel described events before they happened. What is it? God knows. That's the explanation. God knew and he showed Daniel. It, so it seems, it, actually as you look through them, scholars reckon about two-thirds of Daniel's predictions have already be, been fulfilled as described. And then we get into the contentious bit about, well, what is there left yet to be fulfilled in the rest of Daniel? By the time of Jesus coming to earth, the Jewish people were desperately waiting, longing for one like the Son of Man, who's, this, who's talked about in Daniel chapter 7, coming with the clouds of the heavens, after the four kingdoms have come and gone, that this one like a Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and receives an everlasting kingdom and is given authority and glory and sovereign power over all the nations and people over every, of every language worship him. So the Jewish people are like longing for that person, the Son of Man, to come. So we're going to do a test case and then talk about various ranges of views for biblical prophecies. Now we can maybe handle this. Is that all right? Still with me? Okay. So there's a passage that starts in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. You can have a look if you want in your Bible. Well, I'll talk you through it anyway. This outlines a time period of 
it's, it, it's, it gets a bit com complicated, but it has been worked out. Seven seven-year periods, and then 62 more periods of seven years, which adds up to 483 years. It says there's going to be 483 years are going to happen from the call to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was still in ruins at the time that Babylon was still in charge. We've just been reading Nehemiah as a church and we know that there came a point at which Artaxerxes, the ruler of the Persian Empire, later gave Nehemiah permission to go and help to rebuild it. Ezra had already started to rebuild but he's rebuilding the city. So this is all around 445 BC. So Daniel is told, and you can read who by, by Gabriel, the angel, to write that, if you add it all up, around AD 30 or AD 33, depending who you read, the Messiah would come to Jerusalem and be cut off. Serve the death penalty. But not for himself. Ooh, I wonder who this could be. Because it's for us, it's not for, for himself. So imagine, around AD 30, people who are looking at their Old Testaments and Daniel and working out the, the years and adding it all up. How are they, what, what's, the, what's the expectation going to be around then of, of Messiah coming? But we really need to understand what were they looking for? What were they thinking Messiah would do? Now, it then goes on to talk about after the Messiah is cut off, the city and the temple would be destroyed. Did that happen? Yes, AD 70. And Israel was not rebuilt as a nation again until 1948. Gabriel says wars will continue and then later Daniel writes about then an abomination would come and desecrate the temple. Now, some people are going to say, that's the Antichrist. That's this powerful figure who at some point still to come will sign a treaty that breaks, that, that, then he'll break, that it makes peace with Israel and then breaks it. And then he will, he will say that actually all people should worship me and then all hell breaks loose literally and Armageddon starts and all this kind of stuff. Others are going to look at it and say, no, actually that happened already. Together with much of what we've seen that Daniel already described. During the, if, you've got your, if you had your Bibles, your paper ones, during the 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testament, what's called the intertestamental period. Because we don't have a gap, we may just have a page. But there's 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's actually a very interesting time. During which, for instance, one of the kings who came and conquered Israel during that time was a Syrian called Antiochus, who gave himself the title Epiphanes, which means illustrious God. Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews, however, called him Epimenes, which means mad one. <laughs> and a traditional family of very brave priests called the Maccabees revolted against these invaders coming and the stuff that they were doing to, to try and force them to bow down to other gods they refused to do that and so this Antiochus Epiphanes came in suppressed the revolt killed 80,000 men women and children 
And on December the 16th, 168 BC, to show his contempt for their God, Yahweh, he went into the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and then erected a a statue of of Zeus in its place. And then he made many Jews eat pork before killing them or enslaving them. So, as we've said, people who are looking for a natural explanation look at the prophecy there and say, well, Daniel must have written it after it happened. I don't find that idea has any merit at all, personally. The the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran contain eight manuscripts of Daniel. Jesus himself put the stamp of approval on Daniel's writing. He called him the prophet Daniel in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And if he needed to correct the misunderstanding that Daniel really was a prophet and that he wrote what he wrote because he was a prophet, then that would have been a perfect time to say so. But interesting, let's look at Matthew 24. In that passage, Jesus was talking with his disciples. And if you remember, he's responding to them about their questions. They've just come out of the temple and they're going, oh, wow, isn't it amazing, the temple? And then he starts talking to them. They're asking him questions about the end of the age because he said it's all going to come tumbling down. And they're saying, what are the signs of this? What are the signs that we need to be ready for this happening? And then he warned, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, (laughs) we hope, (laughs) then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains etc etc now does that sound like Jesus is saying it's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet in the future and then some people are going to say well when the general Pompey came in in AD 70 and massacred the Jews again crucifying them all over the city so that they actually ran out of wood and just nailed them to the walls surely that is an abomination that causes desolation in the city and then he pulled down the temple and everything and others will say no 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 it happened already it's that evil king Antiochus Epiphanes he was the antichrist he was the abomination in the temple and 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 then other people are going to say no there's another evil ruler who's still to come and the fact that in the old testament the bible predicted so well what happened between the testaments is for me a great reassurance that what it tells us about the future will happen as Jesus and the New Testament writers describe. So, discussion time for you. What do you think of the idea that biblical prophetic material might have a range of different applications for the first readers and subsequent ones? Do you understand the question? Yeah? hope I've been trying to explain it that we can pick it up and we can kind of go oh this means that we've also got to look at it and think well what did it mean to them and what might it have meant at different times in history not just me when I read it as part of my devotional today have a chat is that an interesting question there um that I think in some ways, hopefully, as we look at these things in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to unpack a little bit more. Um, it's um, briefly the idea that, I suppose, that, that you know, the, when the disciples are talking to Jesus, there's some things that he's saying. He's not just saying these things are going to happen in the future. He's basically saying they're happening now while you're here with me and why, aren't, why is nobody noticing? 
that these things are fulfilling these things. It's only afterwards, there's lots of things that Jesus did and it says then afterwards they saw that this fulfilled this. And you know, it must have been quite frustrating for Jesus. He'd be like, don't you know your Bibles? I thought you knew your Bibles, look we just did that. You know, <laughs> and so we're not now waiting effectively for that to be fulfilled. But also, the things that he was fulfilling would have meant something to the people who were first reading it 500 years ago as well. In, in many of them, not everything, but some of it, they would have gone, oh, I wonder what that means. And they don't know because they've not got the Messiah yet. But there were lots of things that they go, oh, that's us, that's Israel. That's, you know, that's what's happening. And then it's again fulfilled in Jesus. And then we're going to look at, well, after that, is there some that's what's, what's yet to be fulfilled? But I can't do it all in one night. And we've got a couple of nights, so we'll look at that again. So when we read these Old Testament prophecies, we're going to see some spoke mostly to their times with prophets, for instance, calling out the injustices of their day and uh, the wickedness, you know, you look at Amos and it's like just, you know, very kind of political effectively around how the rich are oppressing the poor, etc. Others could only be fulfilled when the Messiah came. And as we've said, the gospel writers often write about what Jesus did in his life, his teaching and his ministry, or even what was done to him on the cross or in the way in which he was buried and you know they kept on saying things like and this would fulfill what was written by the prophet dot 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 when he said blah 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 the only old testament books with no element of that kind of prophecy at all in them are ruth and song of songs some books like zephaniah and nahum are majority prophetic in content but they're not really looking at the future if you get what i mean they're kind of prophetic but they're not so much looking at the future in being prophetic. They're more social, if you like, prophecies. Zechariah focused on a king who was going to come and rule the world. Some of the Psalms have got the same focus. There's going to be a king who's going to come. There's a kingdom that is coming. You know, Open wide the gates. Let the king of glory come in. Isaiah predicts virgin birth. And as a writer called Alec Matia catalogues them, then the book of Isaiah portrays the king, the suffering servant, and the anointed conqueror, all coming from David's line. Ezekiel, wow, here we go. A bit late to be getting into Ezekiel. But he's got 821 future-facing verses. Like Daniel, he lived in Babylon. But rather than ministering to the Jews in their palaces, Ezekiel spoke to his fellow Jews in exile after seeing these amazing kind of trippy visions about the majesty and glory of God. And the main thing with a lot of that was that God wasn't hundreds of miles away in the temple in Jerusalem, but God's glory and his presence was right with them where they were in exile and God actually hadn't abandoned them and he still had a plan for them and then you know Ezekiel's got visions of this priestly king a shepherd who's going to come one day and then he sees these old scattered dried up bones of the nation being brought back together again and knitted together by the spirit and then rising up as a mighty army in the power of God and then he predicts a new temple being built though 
the old one was actually there as he spoke it he describes this other temple that's going to be built that actually was far bigger than any of the temples that were ever built this kind of heavenly temple where this messianic figure is going to be worshipped forever so throughout the old testament you have this theme this eschatological future hope what is it god rules as sovereign he's king over everything he creates so again you start the old testament genesis chapter one god decrees let there be let there be and let us it's very royal it's very regal god's being a king in the way in which he makes everything adam and eve are then made in his image they're royal they're made they're meant they're like regents they're meant to to rule like he would rule to exercise dominion dominion's a very kingly word it's a, over the colony of heaven that is the earth but they commit treason against god they reject him as the king and as a result they lose their own place their own position to be able to rule and instead they're ruled over or they try and rule over each other and the man wants to rule over the woman and vice versa but rather than give up the project this hope is there and it becomes it starts really small but it becomes clearer and clearer throughout the old testament it starts you can see a glimpse of it even there in the garden of eden when everything went wrong with the fall of creation the satan is warned that nothing will stop god's plans one is going to come who will crush his head genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and then even as the story goes from bad to worse and corruption spreads and people get proud and build towers to themselves trying to reach up to the heavens and spread their evil across the world and there has to be a flood and then there's a kind of fresh start but it just goes bad again and then there's promises and predictions and prophecies that keep going and growing that the idea is that God is going to move decisively in the nations because a king is coming a king is coming a king is coming and when the king comes he's going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth that's the hope all the way through the old testament and god keeps on making covenants which is what kings do by the way kings if you're going to rule you make a covenant you say if you will do this then i will do this so god keeps establishing covenant after covenant after covenant like if we're going to be in relationship here's how it's going to work he says, I'm going to keep on blessing you. I'm going to help you to defeat your enemies. And, and yet one day this king will come and he will overthrow them all. All the false gods and the demons are going to go and, and be destroyed. And this king is going to come and restore and rescue Israel and establish God's rule again. This is what they're getting excited about. Thousands of years. But they keep on rejecting God. Israel rejects God over and over. They reject God as king they want a king like all the other nations they say give us a king to rule over us like all the other nations get and so they get a king but even the best of their earthly kings acts corruptly rules imperfectly so then after the kings come the prophets all pointing more and more towards this one who's going to come the heavenly king is going to come from the line of david so by the time of jesus the Jewish people had a picture like this 
of what was going to happen. This is the hopeful expectation from their scriptures. When you go home tonight, somebody says, what did you go and talk, look at? You can say, oh, we looked at Second Temple Judaistic Eschological Expectation. <laughs> Expialidocious. <laughs> um, this just means they had this hopeful expectation from Scripture which was only brought more and more sharply into focus when these hated people from Rome came in and ruled over them after everybody else has been ruling over them and this shouldn't be happening because we thought God was meant to be our king and they're waiting and they're longing and maybe this can help us realise a little bit how excited they were on Palm Sunday because their future hope their eschatological anticipation was that the covenant would be renewed, that the people of God would be regathered from wherever they were scattered, that the temple would be restored, that the righteous would be resurrected, that the enemies would be resoundingly judged and crushed and defeated, and God would reign as king again, all through the work of his anointed one, his servant the Christ, the Messiah. So, that was what they thought at the end. Um, and what do we think happened to change that view when Jesus came in? Fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, left, right and centre, when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Deliberately, fulfilling prophecies right before their eyes that the king had come. How do you think Jesus felt when they missed it? When he wept as he approached because they couldn't see who he was. That he curses a fig tree not as a, just as a sign that they were not ready like they should have been. If they'd have looked at their Bibles, they would have recognised who it was who had come. And how might that help us to work out the rest of the prophecies we read as we now get ready for his return? Hi, I'm Anthony Delaney. I'd love to welcome you to Ivy Church. Do check out the website, click on a few buttons, look at some previous teaching and some of the other things that we've been involved with. And why not plan to join us soon at one of our locations? Join a grow group, do the alpha course and figure out for yourself what it is that Christians believe. Or if you've got anything we can pray about, be in touch, press the contact button so that you can email us, let us know about you and how we hope you can be part of us. Come and join us at Ivy Church.